can. You can burn. Hey, so you know what I realized? What's that? When when you do your edits, yeah, not everything ended up on the ones. Oh, that's right. True, yeah, because yeah. I was sitting here with a little timer in my hand, going every eleven minutes and making you cut in. <laughs> um, but sometimes you're in at nine minutes. That's fine. We did we did our part. Hopefully, the weather cooperated and everything <laughs> we made up on funny the fly. Every time in the one, you know, I'm not that good. So some, sometimes it takes takes a couple extra seconds for me to be funny. Anyways, thank you guys for listening. It's can you confirm that? What are we on now? Like this is a uh, seventeen of season two of. Can you confirm that? So thanks, everybody, for tuning in. This week is an interesting week. We have a special guest this week, back to a friend of the show, and he's an expert on a pretty popular topic right now. Um, our friend and yours, um, my friend Josh Munning. So we're excited to have Josh on today. Uh, Josh is what we'd like to call an armorer or a gun handler, and he works um, for film and media. And uh, he has lots of different names, and he has lots of different background, and we're excited to learn a little bit about that, excited to learn a little bit of what's been going on in the news lately as far as uh, gun handling goes in, in the movies. So welcome to the show, Josh. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me on. How's everybody's day going today? <laughs> Better than Alec Baldwin's guy. Yeah, what go. I was going to say is, Josh, <laughs> first tell me, how does someone become a gun handler for, the, for film? Yeah, uh, well, uh, I guess, uh, I mean, I just give you a quick background on me. Um, uh, actually, just you just happened to be word of mouth, really. Um, uh, mainly, they were looking for guys with quite lengthy military backgrounds, which I have. Um, okay. I'm, I'm still currently serving in a reserve unit uh, with the Canadian military. Uh, they were also looking for guys who actually had operational experience um, abroad. So uh, there was a friend of a friend who happened to be working as the manager at the time, and he just uh, put my name in. I put my resume in, did an interview, and they uh, basically started making me work straight away. Um, so they liked my resume. And, um, of course, that's not just what you need because there's some, you know, I would kind of mentored for the first little bit by guys who've been doing it longer than me because there's a lot of stuff that you need to know that's sort of outside the military purview. But they wanted guys on set who could not only do the gun handling, but also do advice to the, you know, the director, the assistant director um, when it comes to, you know, how things should look. Um, and then also somebody that can actually train actors if that's required um, in the use of the firearms. So they actually look good on screen, depending on what they want in the shot. If it's something extremely complex um, where they're, you know, doing a shoot and then they're having to reload a magazine on screen, you know, you, you actually have to send them through some sort of training. Sometimes it's not as complex as that. You s simply show up. Um, and the actor might have to shoot it once or twice, but most of the actors and actresses want to look good. So mm. they, they sort of seek out your advice as well. So just quickly before we get some more of your background, first thing comes to mind is that single handed 
shotgun reload that Arnold does in T2 on that motorbike. Do you know which one I mean? Where he spins spins the shotgun. That is the coolest thing I've ever seen. Is that realistic? (laughs) Uh, If you've got arms like Arnie, then yeah. (laughs) Okay, good. But if you're dainty, you might break something. Okay. (laughs) Depending on how many uh, rounds you have in that tubular magazine, that can be quite heavy. Um, so you're basically flinging all the weight down onto what is a lever action and then you're flinging it back up. So, um, yeah, hopefully you don't twist your wrist or even break bones in your hand, which would be bad. But I mean, he pulled it off, so it looked good. Would that be the job of, of the gun handler who'd be like, I've got something really cool for a guy like you to be able to reload the shotgun? Or do you think well, it depends. See, that, w- this is where we have conflict sometimes with stunts because that's another department, right? Okay. Um, and stunts don't like being told what to do with the guns. So there has been some sort of back and forth on a couple of films that I've been on. Um, and a friend of mine who's actually, uh, I can't say his name because he's now in, um, he's he's doing the Special Forces course for the Canadian Army, so... He's probably going to be uh, not doing movie armory stuff much anymore, but um, it was on Triple X. And I forget the actor's name, but he sent him through training. And then he was like, oh, he wanted to do like a one handed reload with a handgun, which is quite difficult. Not Um, Vin. No, it was, uh, I think he's Thai. He's like a martial arts guy. I, let me see if I can find him while we're doing this. I'll find the name. But essentially, there's a scene where he tries to do a He's fighting a guy with one hand, and he's doing gun stuff with the other. So he does the reload where he he goes empty and then puts a magazine in. And then he uh, basically racks the slide with the back of his heel, of his foot. Um so my friend was basically putting him through training and he was like, oh, yeah, this might look cool if you're trying to do this. And then, of course, he was like, that's amazing. I want to put that in the movie. And then we got to shooting it and the stunts department was pretty displeased with us because they, well, I think it's because they didn't come up with it themselves. <laughs> so, yeah, we got sort of a wrist wrapping of like, that's not your job. That's our job. So anyway. Very cool. Very cool. That is cool. You know what I'm what I learned from that, John, uh, <laughs> is that unlike Edward Furlong, who was discovered in an arcade for Terminator 2 by the casting director, uh, my chances of ever being discovered as an armorer at the gun range are actually pretty uh pretty slim to nil to none. Uh so that was my takeaway. That was my takeaway. Well, I do want to know, Josh, so you said um extensive background. So you started in from what I understand in the British military, is that true? Uh, I actually started in the Canadian Reserves in high okay. school. Um, I was, uh, I probably even shouldn't be saying this, but whatever. Uh, it's too late now. Uh, I, was actually, I was underage. I was actually oh, okay. 15. And they had this program running in high school called the co-op program. Um, and you could do essentially what we called at the time your PL, uh, sorry, your QL2, which is essentially basic training. Um, okay. And they call it BMQ now. Um, and you do your basic training sort of like you do your high school classes 
in the morning and then in the afternoon you'd go down to the local reserve armory and they teach you how to march and iron your uniform and do all that stuff and then um and then that got you into the reserves essentially and then you would do your trade training and i it was an infantry unit in peterborough ontario okay and uh so you did your infantry training in the summertime uh so by the time I was finished grade 10. I was a fully qualified infantry dude. Um, so my last two years of high school, I was doing high school stuff, and I was also in the Army Reserves. Um, and then right at the end of high school, I volunteered to do a tour in Bosnia with the Canadian Army. Um, and uh, while I was there, I was talking. We worked with the British Army a lot, and uh, I found out that if you... For a Canadian citizen, you could join the British Army um, right. with no passport or anything like that. So um, when I finished my Bosnia tour, I came back, and it was sort of the decision, do I want to join the Canadian Army full-time, or do I want to try something different? So I resigned from the reserves, got on a plane, and I flew to England, and um, I joined the Royal Marines. Wow. Uh, so uh, I was in the Royal Marines between... But when I joined was in May 99, and I got out of the Marines full-time at the end of 05, uh, because at the time all my friends were going to do private security work in Iraq. So I did uh, private security work in Baghdad between sort of uh, end of 05 and uh, when was it? End of 07. And then I rejoins the Royal Marines as a reservist um, and specifically to do a tour in Afghanistan. So I did the Afghanistan tour 08, 09. Um, and then I went back to private security work in Baghdad. Um, and I was still a reservist and doing private security work at the time. Uh, so I did, uh, I went back to Baghdad uh, worked for the same company, and then they found out that I had an Afghan tour, so they basically gave me a job in Kabul. So I spent about two years in Kabul, um, and I kind of saw the writing on the wall, the way things were going in Afghanistan. So I applied to another company that did maritime security, which is basically uh, armed security teams on merchant vessels going through the Gulf of Aden, because there was quite a bad piracy issue at the time. Um so I did that, and then uh, at the end of 2014, I sort of, you know, I decided that I probably should move back to Canada because uh, mom and dad are, you know, dad's getting towards retirement. Mom's just retired this year. Um, so I came back, and I just ran into a guy that I was in Bosnia with, and he's like, hey, you should rejoin uh, the my reserve unit. So I was like, Okay. Uh, it took a year and a half to get back in uh, because the Canadian military system at the time, the recruiting system was quite slow. Um, and in, and that's when I got the armor job. Uh, so I was doing the armor thing. And then finally I rejoined the reserve. So I kind of have, well, I actually have three jobs. I, I do the reserve thing. I uh, do some security consultancy and then I also do armor. So sort of three different threads of income. And have you always had like a need or a want in service? Like, did you always, obviously you started young, so you must have wanted to right away. 
Well, yeah, I mean, it, it kind of started before that. I joined cadets when I was like 11. Oh, wow. So I've kind of done military stuff from for pretty much all my life. Girl, uh, do you I have think... any idea how safe my family Christmas is? <laughs> Knowing all this? <laughs> uh, John, I, I, do, I do want for, like, on the record here, listen. Yeah, I'm a total pansy. I know. Um, no, no, you're you're safe on the podcast with me too, buddy. I mean, <laughs> my application with the French Foreign Legion is still under review, but the chances <laughs> are looking good. All right, I got your back still. Don't worry. You, um, but nowhere near, nowhere near as safe as you are around your family. <laughs> to be honest, yeah. No. yeah. <laughs> Jeez. You, yeah, you got the makings of like. To be honest, you got the makings of what I would call like uh, a classic comedy heist caper movie. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I, I get. You no, know, you got the brown the brown family sitting around the table, and then all of a sudden, the guys with the machine guns busting through the windows, and then you all just look at each other, and you're like, "It's another one of those Christmases," and then you go off and like save the world. It's you could write that movie, John. You could. Yeah, no kidding, no kidding. What, what, what part? I'd play the Seth Rogen like idiot role in that film, I guess. Oh, hundred percent sidekick. You're the sidekick <laughs> to like your to the to the Josh's John Cena man. Like, <laughs> so, <laughs> so like if, if there's ever a buddy comedy starring uh, Liam Neeson and uh, <laughs> and like Kevin Hart, I'm Kevin Hart in that one for sure. Oh, I like that. Ah, I, I think you're. You, yeah, I like that. I'm trying to remember what it's, what's the name of the character of Steven Seagal in that. Oh, what was that one <laughs> um, where he's the chef on the ship and oh. the terrorists take over, and then it's like uh, oh, uh, uh, under under it siege, under, under siege. siege. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. But I don't know his character name. Yeah, yeah. we talked about movie called Chef. Not... I thought he was just called Chef. Yeah. <laughs> no, he was like it was like chief, oh Chief Ryback. That was there it. You go. <laughs> And it, it turns out the chef is some like Navy SEAL dude who, you know, karate chops everybody. It's hilarious. Now, did you, have you uh, always been interested in film or did, the, is it film, is it kind of like a film adjacent thing where you sort of, yeah, I'll do this. That seems kind of cool. Like I know about ammunition. Totally serendipitously. Like I, I didn't, I didn't really, I was not seeking that employment. One thing right. about being on endless operational tours is you watch a lot of movies. Okay. Uh, so right. most guys who go on deployments, it, you, what people don't understand in the military is, is there's, you know, 90% of it is boredom. Um, so, you know, if you're not working out um, and you're not reading a book, somebody's putting a film on. So, you, you know, your average military guy is kind of a film buff because uh, oh. just have so much time to watch movies um so yeah you'll you'll do six months uh somewhere and you know and entertainment wise you all you know have hard drives you'll have like copied movies and you'll you know every one of you will probably watch every film that's current and then on top of which you got to get flown back and forth uh, especially when you're doing private security on airlines to you know the middle east and which means that you catch all the movies on the flight so, yeah, I mean, I, I am, you know, fairly knowledgeable with movies, but I never really thought I'd end up doing stuff with the film industry. Okay. Interesting. No, that's awesome. That's like, cause you, you always wonder where the, where the in is, but that makes total sense. Right. Like, right. um, you hear about like athletes who are 
part of esports teams as well, like actual athletes. And you wonder how that happens. Well, it's because you know when they're when they're on their charter planes between games, they're playing video games and all that. Like there is that kind of in and. I think it's really, really cool that, uh, like the military has like a secret little film buff society. Like, this is cool to me. This is an information that's needed. Like, and the fact that you're calling, like, it's amazing. Well, I, I think the biggest issue though is you, you can't watch any military films anymore because you become highly critical. Right. Uh, there's, uh, there's a I, good... but are, sorry, I don't mean to cut you off. Are you critical of the content, or is it more like when a doctor's watching ER and they're like, "Well, ER is good because it's accurate," but I can't watch House because it's that stuff's yeah. not real medicine. Is it more that, or? Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, there's literally no films that are done about the military that I can't catch a mistake. Um, <laughs> and this is like this has been done on other podcasts. Uh, I think Joe Rogan's one where. Uh, he's got military guys on and they're like, yeah, like we, we can't watch, especially with, you know, girlfriends or partners. We can't watch a military film because you just like some of the stuff is so outrageous. You you're like, oh, that would never happen. But I mean, on top of which, you got to catch that with the fact if you were going to make a realistic military film, it'd be nine hours long and it would be mostly boring because you are sitting around a lot or you're mission planning and mission planning is takes a lot of work and is exceedingly boring. Um, and like, so, and then you're just sitting around waiting to go. So, you know, you'd have this nine hour film and everybody'd be bored to death. So, you know, I understand there has to be artistic license, but at the same time, you know, when the guy's firing, uh, you know, his weapon and he hasn't changed a magazine in five minutes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's an interesting topic. So I do want to talk about firing weapons soon. Um, but maybe first I can ask you, what what would you say is maybe your top three uh, military films then for the, the people who listen to Can You Confirm That? Because we talk a lot about movies. What would you recommend as close? If you I, want to, I want to know yours too, John. I want to know yours too. <laughs> okay. Uh, I don't even know if I have a top three. There's, there's kind of only like one or two. Um, oh, okay. Probably, and it's only it's only good from my perspective because I was never there. Um, and my operational experiences would have been very different to these guys. So I can still sort of buy into the illusion. Um, but essentially saving private Ryan would probably be um, okay. close to the top. Okay. That's good to know. I mean, it's Spielberg. So <laughs> yeah, well, I mean the, the opening scene in itself, I mean, like it's, it, you know, that, pretty much gets you in the seat for the rest of the film. So, right. uh, and the accuracy, you know, I, I know some guys who do like reenacting who are really into that stuff and they did a really good job with uniforms and weapons and all the accuracy of like how everything should look uh, right down to like the correct badges on the shoulder and stuff like that. Um, that's a big problem with military movies is the costumes department usually screws that kind of stuff up. Um, but yeah, they, uh, they did a pretty good job on that one. Well, I'm embarrassed to say mine, so like I don't want to oh, say yeah, well, I don't want to say like the Hurt Locker or whatever, and, and you'd be like, "Those six are bullshit." <laughs> well, <laughs> why do you mention the Hurt Locker? Because uh, the, yeah, okay. that was the um, that was uh, a film that my company worked on. Oh, that's cool. Then all right. Well, I guess you got to give me at least one point for that. Yes, but I mean, at the same time, it's terrible. 
Okay. I mean, uh, I don't want to get into the legal side of things, but uh, I'm pretty sure they still owe my boss money for that film. Oh, okay. Really? Uh, (laughs) From the stories that he's told me, it's, it turned into a bit of a shit show. Well, there's so many though. Right. And, and to be honest, uh, I was your earlier point a little bit about like when, when you're watching it with someone and uh, yeah, the costume, like I didn't think about the fact that I don't, I don't know enough about these things until I, I do some research after I've seen a movie. Right. That's, that's when I might figure out that, Hey, maybe some of the patches and fury were wrong. But until I, well, while I'm watching the movie, I'm enjoying it, right? Like that—that's kind of the thing. And Saving Private Ryan, I mean, that's—I think the best thing that movie actually just kind of the fact that it birthed the the productions of like Band of Brothers and The Pacific, and I believe they're yeah. working on a the, the third right now. Um, I don't know what the name is or what. I think they're focusing on the African side of the things. I'm not too sure, uh, but I did hear that there's a third one in development. So like, I'm I'm glad to see it. Um, but I guess, yeah, man, I, I'm just, I'm not an expert on enough things, so I'm glad that my film viewing experience is not tainted by my, I don't know, I guess if they made a lot of movies about fast food, there, <laughs> there might be a couple of moments I'd be pretty annoyed. I'd be like, there's no way those fries would be that good. Well, right? I mean, like, it what? depends on what you're into. I mean, like, if you're, say, a musician and you yeah. watch a film about music, like, I wouldn't, I'd be lost. I'd be like, oh, that looks pretty cool. But I'm sure somebody who is a very good musician would look at that film and be like, okay, that's impossible. And you would never pick it up. Like me as a, as you know, an amateur, I'd be like, looks good to me. So yeah, I mean, it's just one of those things. If it's a, a field that you're, you know, you referenced before medical shows. Um, I, I have a friend of mine who's, uh, who's in the Royal Marines, who's a doctor and he's like, yeah, he can't watch medical programs because he's just like, that's dumb. So, you know, it's one of those things. Makes perfect sense because that's why I always say, from like personal experience, I think those Harold and Kumar movies are totally overrated. <laughs> well, that's why my favorite films are comedy because nobody—it's not you can't—you don't have to take it seriously. Um, you know, there's no technical aspect to it. You're like, well, that's bullshit. You know what right. I mean? You can, you, can uh, you know, artistic license-wise, you can just run away and do whatever you want. So, yeah. I don't know. I think Rob's dad's still pissed that he's not a doctor. oh man um no i think you you nailed it because i was watching just yesterday um guitarist reacts to um guitar parts in movies and uh you know like there's that famous scene in wayne's world where cassandra describes the 1964 stratocaster that wayne wants to buy and like yeah, th- those things you do pick up on easily and quickly for sure as a musician. Even live performances. You Did they do it right? No. Well, first of all, 1964 Stratocaster in mint condition would be like twenty five, thirty thousand dollars $30,000. And we never see Wayne with that kind of cash. And then she says, uh, ooh, with a whammy bar. And no one would ever like, no one would ever say, oh, a whammy bar. Like, who gives a shit? And that comes pretty much standard. That'd be like with hubcaps, you know, like you wouldn't be that excited about a whammy bar ever. Um, yeah. She talks about like modding the guitar, which you would never do on a 1964 Stratocaster. It's an exclusive guitar, so it, little I'm things. But yeah, I get, I get what you're saying. Yeah. Um, so I guess the topic du jour. So there is a reason that we have you on today too, Josh. Uh, we want to talk a little bit about what's going on right now 
our friend of the show, Alec Baldwin, as we sort of alluded to. Yeah, he's a friend of the show, too. He's a good friend. That's, that's the yeah. saddest part about all this. It's like, yeah. <laughs> he listens. <laughs> we, we had a segment. Yeah, we, we had a segment on this on this very podcast that was doing very well, gaining a lot of traction. The good people at Alec Baldwin's show decided to reach out and say, hey, uh, that's the name of our podcast. Uh, uh, and then we said, you know what? We will quietly kill this segment. No one will notice. And nobody did. Uh, and it was, and it went nicely, but I mean, good friend of the show, Alec Baldwin, we, we killed a segment just to honor him. Uh, but you know, we killed a segment. He seems to have actually killed someone. Is that, is that what's happened? Uh, yeah. I mean, the, you know, when we're doing first aid, you always have to identify the mechanism of injury. And of course that was the mechanism of injury. So there's no way of getting around that. Um, Um, before we get too gruesome, Josh, let's talk about what happened here. So what we know is that um, uh, Alec Baldwin, famous movie star, <laughs> was on the set of a film and was handed a gun. And uh, somehow the gun went off with live uh, live rounds in it. Shot, I think, through, is it the stunt coordinator? I'm sorry if I don't know her role. Uh, it was um, the director of photography. Director of director photography. Of photography? Yeah, so the the DOP, for short, um, was – so this is also – I'm just going to frame this, by the way, before we start. Uh, This is, one, most of this is open source information, and two, it's also secondhand information. So I'm only talking about stuff that's already on the news and stuff that I've been told by my boss, Mm -hmm. who apparently mildly knows someone who's involved. Um, So, yeah, so essentially, uh, I guess uh, they were rehearsing. So I guess they weren't even rolling. Um, And the first AD picked up a gun from the gun cart um, because they had to have a gun to rehearse and uh, handed it to... uh, Also, he apparently uh, yelled out on set, cold gun, which essentially indicates that it's unloaded and it's safe. Um, Handed it to Alec Baldwin, and then I guess uh, immediately afterwards, uh, the DOP was shot. From what I've been told, it hit her in in the chest and exited out of the back of her shoulder, and then the ricochet, which exited out of her, then hit somebody else as well who got injured. Yes. I believe that was the director of the film, right? One something. Yeah. Now, so um, I, I have I don't yeah. hold guns a lot. By is there any? Can you tell by weight or anything like that if a gun is, on a, like, if it's empty? Oh, or not? Well, you should, you shouldn't be relying on weights. You should actually clear the weapon. Of course, so, of course. Part of firearm safety. Forget movies or anything else. You know, there's some fairly basic rules about using firearms because you know. Just like any other tool, like a vehicle or a car, uh, you go through procedures to ensure that, you know, like you don't start a car if the car's in drive. Um, I know they've got a lot of safety devices to ensure that that doesn't launch the vehicle now, so you can't start the vehicle. But in the old days when we had a manual transmission, if it was in first and you tried to fire up the vehicle, it would roll forward if the handbrake wasn't on. So, you know, you there's procedures that you go through before you you know, pick up a weapon. One of them is don't point it at anybody. Two, always keep your finger outside the trigger uh, guard 
so which is essentially covering the trigger mechanism. Mm-hmm. Um, and then two, you basically confirm what the state of the weapon is by checking. Um, now, I can't go into all the procedures of because all firearms are different, but um, I'm assuming he was using some sort of revolver. That's what it sounds like. Um, and to check, and if if my guess is right, it was some sort of single action revolver that was you know famous in the old west so to do that you pick up the firearm place the weapon on half cock open up um the there's usually some sort of uh, loading gate on the side um and then you rotate the cylinders of the revolver to ensure that there's no rounds present that clearly didn't happen um because we wouldn't be in this you know he wouldn't be in this position if it had happened now, how does a gun arrive to you on set? Do you pick them up and deliver them to set? Do they get shipped to set? Yeah, no, no, they don't get delivered. Usually what happens is um, I will get paid for a day or two of prep work, depending on how big the gun day is and how many people are involved. But let's say it's just a basic, you know, one gun scene. Um, I'll go into the... Uh, shop usually the day before or maybe on the same day depending when they want when my call time is Hmm. i will then um test fire that weapon to ensure that it's actually working because you don't want to get the set and then it it goes to action and then nothing goes bang uh so i'll test fire the weapon in the vault um i'll then obviously ensure that it's clear I'll put a trigger lock on it because in Canada we have um, transport procedures and safe storage procedures that we have to stick to. Um, And then I'll lock up the, usually it's like a Pelican case or whatever. Um, And then I will go and account for all the ammo that I'm drawing for it, depending on how much we're going to use. And then of course, depending on the weapon, whether it needs magazines um, or any accoutrements. And I will also make sure that inside the box is all the correct blank firing adapters that are needed for that day. So I'm doing a complete kit check before I leave to make sure I've got everything because once I leave my shop, like, you know, it depends on where the filming location is. Uh, it's not like I can just go back to the shop halfway through shooting to pick something up if I've forgotten it. Right. Uh, so yeah, I go through all that and then, uh, I'm off to the set. And then when I'm on set, um, because again, we're in Canada and we have safe storage laws. I have to have chain of custody on those weapons at all times. So I can't just leave my cart for a coffee. Right. Um, like if I've got to go to the bathroom and I'm the only guy on set, I got to lock everything up. Um, sometimes I can get away with it because inside the Toronto area, it requires a police officer to be present as well, supervising. So, if he's if I've got a police officer with me, I can be like, "Hey, man, can you just watch the cart for me?" And then I will go off and do my thing, come back. But then, of course, if I'm coming back, I'm confirming again because that gun's been out of my sight what the state of the weapon is. Okay. It's not that I don't trust the police officer who's there, but you know, anything could have oh. happened in my absence, right? So yeah, that's basically kind of a sort of a basic synopsis of how it works. Have you worked on both like Canadian and U.S. sets, or is it just Canadian sets? Uh, just Canadian. So okay. the thing is, the Canadian industry is quite big. Right. Um, sure. So I have been to 
the Dominican Republic, but it's obviously a Canadian production. So we had to go down there to film and then come back. And then I've been to other places in Canada um, besides just Toronto to film. Like they sent me out to Calgary for like two. Um, But yeah, the, the industry is quite large. Um, So really the thing with the Canadian industry, there's, not many companies that just do the armor part of things. There's a guy out in Vancouver that's quite big. Then there's Charlie here in Toronto for Movie Armaments Group. Um, There is one, I think there's one or two other guys in Toronto that may do it, but their stock of firearms is not that big. Um, And then there's a guy in Montreal. But it's to the point where, like, if the guy out in Vancouver needs something that he doesn't have, he'll usually uh, rent it from Charlie and then they'll transfer those firearms over to him. Um, and usually it's just a Canadian, you know, for all the Canadian productions. But surprisingly enough, that's a lot of business because the Canadian industry is quite big. I mean, they it, have uh, a lot of... Sorry, go on. Sorry, I was just going to say, is it regionalized like this? Um, so... Um, will you and your company get hired to go elsewhere? Because, like, for example, Rust was being filmed in Mexico. So would it be a Mexican team that would have been handling those those weapons? Or could it have been some, like, a U.S. company? Yeah, or could it have been the same as, like, when you went down to the Dominican kind of thing, right? Yeah. yeah. I, I thought it was in New Mexico. No, actual uh, Mexico. Mexico. Actual. Yeah. I thought it was well, actually, yeah, I thought they were over the border. I mean, I don't know. I yeah, that's the interview what I... with the sheriff. It was New Mexican State Police. Mm. I'm sure it was in New Mexico. Okay. I mean, we we'd have to. Ch- I'd have to check, yeah. but I'm sure that the. I mean, that comes on to another sort of oh, no, subject. Oh yeah, Santa Fe. You're right. Yeah, they were in Santa Fe. Yeah. yeah. So the the problem that we have is because the Canadian industry offers. Um, a lot of tax incentives, and of course the Canadian dollar is cheaper compared to the American dollar, a lot of people want to come up here and film. But that usually means that the higher echelons of production, like from, say, Paramount or Fox or whoever it is, they'll be American. Um, And then on top of which, a lot of the time, the director and the DOP and possibly even the first AD might also be American. And then the rest of the crew will be Canadian. The problem with that is, is the the Americans that come up here don't understand Canadian firearms law, and I don't know how it works in the states. It depends on the jurisdiction, but I I've had a feeling from stunt crews and stuff that have come up that have also been American. There, they feel that the whole armor on set with us and the very restrictive way that we operate, they're not used to it, and I've had to explain this to them a couple times. Um, just to clear things up. Now, I have a feeling that that might have an effect on safety from what the sounds of what happened in New Mexico. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Seems to be a direct correlation, possibly, <laughs> maybe. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to, I'm, I'm sort of just guessing, but the right. big thing <laughs> that, that seems to be the major issue with them is chain of custody. Uh Apparently, the well, I mean, I don't even know if this is true, but apparently the armor wasn't even present when this happened. Okay. Which is, I don't know where she was. I don't know if she's having lunch or, you know, she's going to the bathroom or whatever. But um, 
if, for instance, in Canada, if somebody asks for a firearm, um, nobody's going to be grabbing that firearm unless the armor hands it over. And then when we hand it over, we don't just say, you know, cold gun or gun clear. We actually demonstrate that it's clear by opening the thing up. If it has a magazine, we will show that the magazine is empty. We'll show that the chamber is empty. We'll show that to the first AD. If he wants to then present the gun to whoever the actor or actresses is, or we'll just show the actor or actress that it's clear. And it's funny because when we do this procedure, a lot of people just look at it blankly because they don't really know how a firearm works. And, uh, you know, I'll be there with my little flashlight on set and be like, yeah, you actually have to look into the chamber to confirm that it's safe. And they'll be like, oh, right. So once we do that, then we'll close the weapon up, depending on what it is, uh, fit the magazine, and then we'll hand it to them. Um, and that's sort of, you know, our safety procedure. But uh, the armor wasn't even present. Um, and the first AD who sounds like he had some mishaps on some other stuff. Um, he just handed the gun over and it, it's pretty clear that he doesn't know a lot about firearms. Now you mentioned that you test fire all the weapons. You yes, test fire them with five rounds. Is that true? Or do you, do you No, no. So, so the thing is, is like, okay, so I guess we could clear one thing up. The term on all these news stories that have been thrown out a fair bit is prop gun. Okay. Um, now, most people, when they hear prop gun, they don't think it's a real firearm. Now, technically, a prop gun, because it's under the properties department, yes, it's a prop gun, but you could be talking about three different things. You could be talking about a live firearm. You could be talking about um, a deactivated firearm that uh, can't fire because it's been mechanically, you know, um, messed with, but it still looks real because it used to be a real firearm before it was deactivated. Or it could be an airsoft firearm, or it could be a rubber firearm that we've made a mold of because uh, the stunts department needs to do some sort of fighting scene with it. We don't want to use a real gun because it'll probably just without firing it, like if you hit somebody with a real pistol, it's going to leave a mark. Um, so, so you know, the, the when they say prop firearm, it could be any of those sort of things that we're talking about. Um, it doesn't mean that it's not a real gun. So what we do is we take a real firearm that's meant to fire live ammunition. And then um, Charlie, my boss, who has quite an in-depth um, tool and dime machining background, will then have to do certain things to it so that it can fire blanks. Um, if you were to, say, take a Glock 17, which is a fairly common pistol, put a, you know, buy it from a firearm store, put a blank into it and shoot it, the blank would go off and it would make a bang, but it wouldn't cycle to reload another round because all those explosive gases would just escape out the front of the barrel. So you'd see a flash, you'd hear a bang, but it wouldn't cycle the next round. So... When you're dealing with semi-automatic or fully automatic weapons, you have to do a, you have to basically fit a blank firing adapter, which is essentially something that restricts the escaping gases leaving the barrel, so that the gun can cycle. Um, and then also we're using different blanks. Sometimes we're using full flash blanks. Sometimes we're using half flash blanks. 
sometimes a quarter flash blanks. Sometimes we do what we call a solid plug load, which is essentially completely plugging the barrel so that somebody can put a firearm like right up next to them, like next to somebody's head and fire a blank without anything escaping out the, the, the front of the gun. And it still cycles. So there's a lot of technical machining that has to go on to basically make the gun fire blanks. Let me ask you a question that I think I know a little bit about. I could be wrong completely. A blank or blanks are generally preferred because of the muzzle flash. Is that right? Like why we don't use just why we don't just do a digital flash or something like that? Well, I mean, that, that's the big thing with the industry now. A lot of people, because they're scared of firearms, they don't want to use blanks and they're digitally putting in um, basically gunfire afterwards. Right. Um, you know, you can't, there's no way of making the gun look like it's cycling. Ejected casings don't come out. Um, you know, the gun's not working like it would if you're firing blanks. So it, it kind of doesn't look good. I mean, there's a lot of production that do do it. I think, it, is it The Walking Dead, that zombie film? They put in everything digitally, like the firing of the weapon, the bullet hits. It's all digital. But if you look at it closely, it doesn't look very good. On top of which, if you're shooting a scene, um, the actors don't have anything to react to because you're essentially just going bang, bang. And pretending like there's a recoil of some sort, right? So um, you can use digital inserts, and they do do that. But in my mind, it doesn't look as good. Uh, obviously, it's a lot less risk. Because you remember, blanks are still dangerous. They're still escaping explosive gases coming out of the end of the barrel. There's no projectile, obviously. But we still have to you know, make sure that things are safe on set by, like, there's all sorts of techniques you can use, but essentially, you know, if you're using a full flash blank, you shouldn't really have anybody within 15 to 20 feet in front of that barrel. Because you've got, you know, escaping gases and unburnt powder um, coming out of the end of that barrel. You don't want anybody to get hurt. So I'm starting to wonder, like, if blanks are this dangerous, in what situation is live ammunition actually ever needed or called for on a set? Like, why why can't you just get away with using blanks all the time like why was there even a live round you asked a very very good question uh because there shouldn't have been live rounds on set because we never used them okay like back in the old days apparently like when i'm talking old days i'm talking like 40 50 years ago apparently there were some occasions where they used live rounds on set but there's literally no need like why i'll put it to you this way our shop because we have military contracts where we do foreign weapons packages for the Department of National Defense, we have live rounds in the shop. They have their own locked storage area, and there's never any cross-contamination with the blank side of things. So we have our own storage areas for blanks, which are completely quarantined from live rounds. You, you literally don't want to ever mix them and we would never never bring live rounds onto a set um the potential for accidents is astronomical Apparently. so yes well evidently because of where we are now <laughs> but um so i mean the other thing i heard was that uh and this is obviously open source news um that i guess 
certain individuals who they haven't really identified were taking these um, firearms, I don't know, during breaks or when they weren't working, and they were firing them offset with live rounds. Um, so immediately, like, you know, if you had hired me for that job, I would have been like, okay, stop, stop, stop. Like, this is... For safety purposes, I would have gone straight to the union rep and like, you need to stop shooting right now. You got to give me like probably two or three days to vet every piece of ammunition um, that's on set, get rid of all the live ammunition, clear all the guns. Because um, like, you know, that's a major issue. But I mean, that being said, I heard there was problems with the union and there was a, several people walking off. So. I don't know what production's relationship was with the union, whether they had a safety guy on set. Usually there is a a union safety representative there. Um, And, of course, the other issue is as well, because it's in New Mexico and I don't know what they're doing. um, But here, as I said, in in the GTA, you have to have a police officer present, which is great because he's not getting paid by production. He's getting paid by the city. I can just go to him and be like, hey, man, this is unsafe. Um, and he'll go straight to, yeah, he'll just shut it down and be like, yep, you can't do this. Um, so, I mean, that's the big problem with the movie industry, right? You've, you got a lot of sycophants. You got a lot of people who are starstruck. They're involved with people who are, you know, celebrities. They want to please consistently, um, which creates this environment where you never want to say no to somebody. Um, and you will get people who have been living their whole lives surrounded by those people who don't get told no very often. So when they do, they get very upset. Um, and I guess if your job's on the line, uh, you, you know, it's, you know, you could take the, uh, you know, hard moral stance, but you'll be out of work if you upset somebody, you know, enough. And they're powerful enough. And then, of course, if they're powerful enough and they're on the production team, you know, they could harm your chances of employment on other productions. So, yeah, I mean, that's the sort of downside of the the film industry. Yeah, that sounds like a slippery slope to unsafe procedures. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, and and I've seen a few things where we're on there and you, you get you know, certain care. I mean, the, the movie industry is changing um, because it's trying to become, you know, lead the charge on, you know, being more diverse and being a bit kinder and stuff. But I mean, you know, it still doesn't stop. You, you meet a few characters on set who, you know, do the yelling and screaming bit and don't seem to be very socially balanced. Um, and they've gotten away with it because they've been in that industry for so long. And, you know, some some people I've come across as like, that's not even acceptable in the military, like, let alone in, you know, in the film industry, um, you know, and they'll do a lot of bullying, yelling and screaming, trying to use the either the, the power dynamic that they're in to get what they want. You ever take the time to mention to them where you've done private security to try to get them to go back to your side and uh, yeah, respect. that's that comes up occasionally. You know, you don't want to get too dark with them, but I think on a few occasions I've mentioned the fact that, you know, like, uh, you know, um, I've mentioned the fact that, you know, 
they don't really know what they're talking about because they haven't seen the results of what a gunshot wound looks like. Um, but the, I don't like mentioning it too much because it has thrown me into some peculiar situations. Um, I was on triple X with Vin Diesel and his security guy. I mean, without going into too many details was kind of strange. And there was a lot of strange stuff going on that set, particularly around Vin Diesel. He's kind of a character. Um, and as soon as this guy found out that I'd done security work in Iraq, he was trying to hire me for um, Vin Diesel's security team. And I was like, no way. Thank you very much, but no thanks. Um, I can't remember if a friend of the show or not. <laughs> ben, Vin's, yeah, he's one of your <laughs> friends, buddy. No, he's not one of mine. <laughs> Well, I mean, like we, there was some shenanigans going on there. And, um, you know, that's how I, I, uh, met, um, my girlfriend is we were on that set and she was, uh, Vin's production assistant. Yeah. We heard about that too. Yes. She's got many more stories about, you know, you know, on the mild side of things, him just not showing up for work, which is crazy. I, I remember several days where we were just sitting around because he was, it was literally a day for his scene. And, uh, you know, he's he'd be like five hours late and you'd have like, you know, the production guys are pulling their hair out because they're spending like millions of dollars with crew and sets and everything else. And you're like, where's your star? Um, Vin does that though to get the performance out of people. He knows that it'll rattle their cages and make them act their best. <laughs> maybe I, I maybe that's his angle i don't know i do know it was highly entertaining uh in the dominican because um he has a house in the dominican and um it's it was nowhere near where we we're filming so he had a helicopter fly him in to set every day and then fly him out but there's a ban on civilian aircraft flying after dark I guess because of the drug trade in the Dominican. So like we'd have loads of stuff that we'd still have to do. And it'd be like, Nope, five o'clock, the helicopter's coming in. He's got to leave. So that dragged on. Cause you know, once you miss one shot on one day, it gets tacked onto the next day. And then now you've missed three shots on the one day and it just starts piling up. <laughs> and in comes okay. ice cube. Yes. Well, that was one of the best days on set. I remember uh, a friend of mine, I'm not going to mention his name because he was quite embarrassed. That whole scene, um, he was like celebbing out big time. He's like, oh, my God, it's going to be Ice Cube. I love him. He's great. And then he was like, can I be the guy that, you know, does the armory bit for uh, Ice Cube? And we're like, yeah, yeah, man, I don't, I don't care. Go ahead. So he hands him the weapon and I don't know how many takes we took, but it just wouldn't work. Um, so like he's supposed to do the scene where he's firing this like multi barrel grenade launcher and it was just not going. And the poor guy who was wanted to be like, I want to beat ice cube. He's standing there like going, I don't know what's wrong. <laughs> so we eventually got it to go and they got the shot, but it took a while. Maybe you can share uh, a little insider information about ice cube. It's one of the originals of gangster rap. Do you think he's fired a weapon before? 
Well, un- I, unfortunately, I wouldn't be able to tell because we gave him a multi-barrel <laughs> Uh, grenade launcher, and I don't think you know down in Crenshaw, South Central, they're you know doing drive-bys with multi-barrel grenade launchers. If we gave him a pistol, I'm sure uh, he probably would have been okay with it. Okay, you know if I was if I was Ice Cube and I was in a movie and the and the weapon's not working, I think my first go-to would have been. It's because they're blanks, guys. Yeah, exactly. You're not giving me live rounds. You're not giving. If this was real, did you just call him Iced Cube? <laughs> well, he's a senior now. I, I hear he just turned down a, a nine million dollar pay packet for a film. Oh, uh, I just read that the other day. Um, are, are we there yet? Reboot the last Friday. <laughs> Uh, did you mention it before on another show? No, no, we've never talked. Oh, about that. <laughs> yeah, I think I think he said no because it's all based around uh, they want. I, I could be wrong. There's something about vaccination, and he just oh. went, yeah. So yeah, but I mean, he was a really nice guy, uh, super down to earth. Um, um, you know, you, there's a few elements of the business where it's like never meet your heroes because you meet a guy that you're like, oh, yeah, he was really, he, you know, you would think he'd be really cool. And they're not. Um, uh, That's what happened to The Rock when he met Vin Diesel. Oh, oh yes, absolutely. When I heard I just finished Triple X and I heard what was going on in the set. And I was like, I'm not surprised at all. Uh, I could totally understand because the rock's a guy who gets up at like four in the morning and works out for eight hours of day of the day, and he's like a super hard worker, and he reads his scripts, and he, you know, and uh, then you got Vin, who's like, well, you know what, uh, I can be an hour late; it'll be fine. So. I bet she's not late for that Marvel check. <laughs> oh well, yes. Uh, what's he? Uh, what was that one in again? <laughs> he plays Groot. He. Uh... His line in the Marvel films is, I am Groot. I, uh, I heard a thing about Vin Diesel, actually. Uh, it was something like, last to set, but the first to the craft services table. <laughs> uh, yes, that would be probably accurate. And, you know, the thing that surprised me is, like, you know, I worked with uh, Will Smith um, and, you know, on, on Suicide Squad. And, um, you know, he... He was a hard worker and he'd, he'd work out and he had a tight schedule and he'd, you know, do all his stuff. And, you know, when you're on those levels of celebrity, keeping in shape, you know, you can hire, you know, a dietitian, a chef, you know, your, your personal trainer. So you can stay in shape. Um, Vin, even though he's, you know, a quadruple <laughs> millionaire, like he's, he's just soaked in money. Uh, not so much. And I was thinking, yeah. like, you know, Soaked you in garlic butter too, eh? <laughs> oh yeah, uh, like when he showed up on that set, they were like, because we had to do some like uh, promotional stuff, and I think the few whisperings around set was like, um, how are we going to digitally fix this? Because he's uh, he's put on a bit of timber, uh, essentially. <laughs> so you know what? Nothing makes me happier than bringing someone on to talk about. Uh, the real life terrible situation that a uh, movie star Alec Baldwin's in, and then that's just ended up shitting on Vin Diesel it makes me quite happy. <laughs> I mean, to to be fair, and people will back this up when he's talking to people, uh, one on one, super nice guy. 
but he, I, I think he's got a real desire to be loved by everybody. Um, but, uh, also kind of, I don't know. But maybe not, he, not his cardiologist though. No, no, he definitely, um, he, he's not that way. And I think his, uh, maybe he's got like, I don't even know. Maybe he's got a bit of a tension span issue. Cause like he will get, I know one of the big problems was, is some big, you know, when that, that triple X movie had a lot of stars on it. So he'd have, he want to have them all in his trailer and just shoot the shit for hours on end. And, you know, you'd be like trying to get him to set and he'd be like, no, nah, I just want to hang out. Um, and I think we were doing something downtown Toronto and a couple of the, I think it was a couple NBA players showed up uh, from the Raptors. And like, yeah, we couldn't get him on set because he's like, no, no, no. I just want to hang out and talk to these guys. Uh, so, yeah, it's just one of those things where it was like an attention span thing. So, anyway. You know who's been talking a lot lately is Alec Baldwin to the press about this Well, yes. That is a so funny thing. To bring it back a little bit, I recently just saw him uh, like get pulled over on the side of the road to talk about the story. Yeah. So, I mean, did you see the full video? Um, I saw the clip where the paparazzi had a problem with the the name of the the DOP and Baldwin was quite offended because he just talked to her husband and son. What what do you mean? Like they they didn't get the name right? They couldn't even remember. They didn't even have record of the name. They're like, uh, her name was uh, hi hi hey, and they're like, you don't even know her name. Get her name right. Right. Quiet. Sure. I mean, yeah. you can't, I mean, those, I, I mean, I'm not really a big fan of paparazzi anyway, because like, I mean, I, I've seen, I don't know whether it's the same video we're referencing, but I know, I think it was a Fox News crew was chasing them in Vermont. Um, and then they pull over and he says, you know, in the exchange between them, he says, look, I can't talk about this because it's an ongoing investigation, which he's correct. Um, at that point, he probably should have just got back in the car. But then he proceeds to talk to them for three minutes. Yeah. Um, and I'm like, I don't know. Have you ever seen those two lawyers on on the uh, who have like a YouTube channel? They're the uh, I don't know if I can swear on this. They're the shut the F up guys. Yeah, you can swear. <laughs> yeah. So the well, I probably already have. I don't even think about it anymore. <laughs> Uh, but they're the two lawyers who are like, if you get pulled over by the police and it's for marijuana, shut the fuck up. Uh, he needs to watch those videos because essentially what's happening now is they're, and again, I'm not a legal expert, but I'm pretty sure New Mexico has um, uh, involuntary manslaughter laws. So, you know, at the end of the day, it's kind of up in the air uh, whether he is actually liable. Uh, so... He really needs to go silent on Twitter and probably not talk to the press unless he has the presence of his lawyer and a pretty good PR person. At least that would be my advice if he was asking me. Um, because, you know, anything you say at this point is going to just be taken down. If you end up in a courtroom, they're just going to be pulling up your Twitter feed. So, 
I mean, this is the, our modern age. You know, it always lives forever on the internet. Honestly, I'm actually worried for Alec. I mean, like, I, I don't, and not not from like any criminal charges point of view. Like, just psychologically, man. Like, yeah. it's not. I think there's a difference between when someone's genuinely charged with like first degree murder like that person kind of got up in the morning and was like i'm gonna kill this person and like wanted to or second degree right like you're even in the heat of it involuntary manslaughter really like in this it's almost kind of like yeah i made an accident with a car or something right but who was careless in this case was it like i don't know if i'm an actor on the set and somebody tells me the gun is cold it's clean it's all good to go i'm i gotta trust my superior on this right like i gotta gotta i gotta trust um but i just think psychologically man like it's the guy remember uh i forget the actor's name but the guy who was in the crow brandon lee yeah not not him though but the guy the guy who was responsible for what happened right and they had done a follow-up on him like a, a profile or something like 15 20 years later in like the new yorker or something and it was just like the psychological damage that had happened of him knowing that this guy's life had ended via an accident something that could have been blah blah blah, preventable and all that kind of stuff i'm i'm more concerned that that like it like he's he we're gonna probably see a spiral on twitter from alec and it's probably gonna be 3 a.m when like the the pills have worn off right or something like it it's i don't know how that guy's gonna move past that and i don't know how in our modern society we we let him even if even if we should right like and i Let's see all what happens. I, I mean, I don't have any real take other than like. Do, do you guys know what happened with the the crow thing? No. Like, are are you aware of how that the like how that technically happened? What I know about yeah. that, I guess, is that it was more suspicious because same thing happened to Bruce Lee. Uh, no, it, it was I, a very it was a similar thing, right? Like they were supposed yeah. to have blanks in the gun and. They found like an actual live again, right? Well, like, and it was not right? quite like, how it happens. Uh, th- so this is the issue. Like, this is why the industry should, you know, always get safer. Um, but in the so essentially, if you're using a revolver and you look down the chambers and it's empty, you can see that. And if it's close enough on camera, you can see that. So when you're doing scenes with a revolver, you will put dummy ammunition. Now, a dummy is basically looks exactly like a live round, but what it should have is no primer in it, no powder in it, and usually it'll have like a little BB inside the casing. So you can shake it and hear that there's no powder in there. Hmm. Um, And then you put it into the revolver, and it looks like it's loaded, but it's not. And we use dummy rounds for that. We also use dummy rounds just as like, if you want to have a scene where, you know, there's a load of guys on a table and they look like they're loading live rounds because blank rounds and live rounds look completely different. Like with a blank round, there's no projectile. Uh, it's just the end of the brass casing is crimped. Uh, so somebody who's looking can tell the difference. So I guess what happened was the dummy rounds were either manufactured by somebody who didn't do it very well or whatever, but they had the dummy rounds in the cylinders. The projectile fell out of the dummy rounds and lodged itself into the barrel. And then they went ahead and unloaded the dummy rounds because then they had to go 
with blanks for the next scene. And of course, you put blanks behind a projectile, you have a real round. And uh, I guess they did have a restrictor in the barrel, so it kind of caught part of the projectile, but uh, a little sliver of the bullet basically hit Brandon Lee just below the rib cage. And I guess he was like, ow, that hurt. Um, and they checked him, and they only saw just a little bit of blood, so they thought maybe he just got hit with a, you know, a part of the brass casing or something like that. But essentially, checking one of them doesn't have a projectile in them, then you have to call a stop, stop, stop to everything, and then clear the barrel. But I guess that didn't happen because somebody must have been in a rush. And again, probably pressure on set. We need to get this done. We're running out of time. You know, all that kind of stuff is involved. Um, and then somebody just didn't call a halt to it and just proceeded. So, um, yeah, that's essentially how that one happened. But again, that's all based around just basic firearm safety um, that everybody should have. I mean, in the case of, of Alec, he, you know, if I was going to be the main actor on a show, even with my firearms background, I would ask production to put me through extensive firearm training prior to the filming of the stuff. Because, um, well, one, I just wanted to look good. Uh, you know, being slick with firearms means that you have to train. It's a perishable skill. You know, you don't do it a lot and then you end up, things end up looking awkward. But on top of that, if you're going to do firearms training, they're going to include firearm safety in that training. So, you know, if, if a first AD hands me a gun and says it's cold and I could just see him not clear it himself. The first thing I'm going to do as an actor is clear it myself. There's a there's a video clip floating around YouTube, um, and it's Will Smith, and he's on set, and uh, somebody's picking up guns, and he picks up uh, a handgun, and is basically waving around and pointing it, and Will Smith very quickly grabs it and pushes the firearm away from him, because obviously the guy is pointing it everywhere. That's against firearm safety. Will Smith quite clearly knew enough that he was like, uh, you shouldn't be pointing that at me. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, but again, Will was pretty good. Like he, anytime there was an opportunity for training, he was up for it. Uh, and he basically respected the firearms probably because he got raised in an area where he saw the effects of firearms use. Yeah, so yeah, that makes sense. And he worked with Josh, obviously, so he knew a little bit about firearm training. <laughs> there you go. Now, well, actors I just like training on that one, but uh, yeah, we they brought in a whole team of uh, ex Navy SEALs and uh, I think an ex Special Forces guy. Um, um, actually, he's the same guy. If you remember Fury, um, he's a big bald guy who was one of the tank commanders who he gets decapitated in one of the scenes. Mm -hmm. uh, he, his name's Kevin Vance. He does a lot of work for, um, oh, who's the director again? Uh, uh, David Ayer for. Yes. Ayer. So he, he's friends with David Ayer and David uses him for a lot of his like tactical training and stuff, but then David puts him in the movie. So uh, what's the one with, the two cops. It's a David Ayer one. Um, I'm trying to remember. Uh, there's, there's two technically, I guess. End of Watch and then Bright, because I guess that 
End of watch, yeah. So do you remember in End of Watch where they roll up to that bungalow and it's full of like um Latino immigrants who have been like caged in there? Um and then they the this dude shows up this huge dude shows up and is like, You guys have stumbled onto something that you don't know anything about. Massive dude with a plate carrier bald head, that's Kevin Vance. Huh. Okay. Yeah. All right, perfect. A star like Tom Cruise or Will Smith or um, Keanu Reeves or someone like that. Who, when I think of like who is a big action star, uses a lot of guns in films. Um, do they have training out, outside of filming too? Like, would they be able to hire uh, someone like you or um, a stunt coordinator or something that would help them look more slick in a film? Like, I assume that yeah, Keanu is like yeah. quite trained. Well, I mean, you've probably seen the videos of Keanu before the first John Wick. Um, that's a that's a company called Terran Tactical down in California, um, and now it's become very very trendy for anybody for anybody who's a who's who to go down there and do training with them. Um, I have noticed that their range is fairly restrictive uh, because it's quite small. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you you know, it depends on the level of money that you're raking in. But, you know, I wouldn't even go to Terran Tactical if they put me in. I, you know, I'd probably find somebody in a state or jurisdiction that has a lot more, you know, property that you can play with, with less restrictive gun laws. And I would, there's plenty of companies out there um, and plenty of ex-Special Forces guys on YouTube that'll take you through some serious firearms training. Um, and even if your production's not willing to pay for it, if you are wealthy enough, um, I would just do it on my own dime because, you know, it's, um, it's every, everything's a learning experience. You know, it's the same deal if they put me in a movie where they're like, Hey, you're going to be a pilot, but you know, I, I just go start taking basic pilot lessons. Mm-hmm. Um, to, and you know, there's lots of stars who do do that. They get very immersed in their roles and they do pre-prep and all that kind of stuff. Um, I think it just depends on how disciplined you are, uh, how much willing you're willing to give to your craft. Um, and then of course the big other issue is money because this stuff isn't cheap. So, you know, there's, I I feel sorry for some of the guys that I meet on set who are sort of get minor roles here in Toronto, who are Canadian, who, who all want to do this training. Every time we meet them, they're like, Hey, we should do some training with you. And you're like, yeah, sure. But this is how much it costs. And they're you know, starving actors who've just maybe got their first part or something like that. They can't afford to do that kind of thing. I'm on the CBC, bro. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, and that's the other thing is, is, uh, you know, they'll ask me to do training for instance. Uh, do you, um, Murdoch Mysteries? <laughs> you remember uh designated survivor? It's a TV series. Yeah. Kiefer. Oh. Kiefer. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's like the second episode of the first series. They send a a load of Navy SEALs into some site in the Middle East to go take some guy out. And they hired me and they're like, hey, we need you to take 25, uh, you know, uh, SSEs, which is a they're not quite stunt guys, but they're like special skilled guys. And we need you to train them to be Navy SEALs. Uh-huh. And I'm like, great, uh, I'll need a week. And they're like, yeah, we're not paying for that. What about three days? And I'm like, okay, well, I'll try to achieve it in three days. And then all of a sudden it got cut down to two days and then one day. And then finally I was like, okay, listen, 
instead of hiring 25 SSEs, how about I just go down to the reserve unit that I'm in, you guys write a waiver with the union, and I will get 25 guys from my units in the army, and then I don't need to train them at all. Um, so uh, essentially, those guys in that film are not Navy SEALs. They are Canadian Army reservists from my unit who go busting through the door. Um, and uh, yeah, that's how we solve that problem. So, and, and as we've already established, all of the Canadian Army reservists are film buffs who are, are practically extras on the side anyway. So they were already made for this. This is perfect. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, so it's hard now because the the generation of Afghanistan vets is getting smaller and smaller who are still in service. Um, so we had, I think, two or three guys who, who were basically doing senior positions um, who actually had operational experience. But, I mean, you know, my unit is pretty good. Uh, so the level of training with just the younger guys is pretty good. And they made it work. They made it look reasonably okay however it was frustrating on set because the director wanted to do certain things and we're like well that's not how it works like that's not how you breach a door and he's like oh, i don't care it doesn't work for the shot so you got 25 extremely frustrated military guys going this is going to look dumb um but then they're getting paid so they just do it anyway right we don't know what it's supposed to look like watching it anymore. well i mean yeah you, that's the problem, right? Uh, yeah. So you get the most, most of the viewership is going to not know the difference. But the problem is there's IMDB and uh, every military guy's on there going, that looks like, <laughs> you know, that looks like shit. Uh, and you're like, then also they want to put your name in the credits and you're like, I don't really want to take credit for this because it looks like crap. I I actually had my name. I didn't have my name deliberately put on triple X because I was <laughs> Kind of embarrassed about that one. <laughs> we we got to the end. That's funny. Um, all right, Gorov, what are you thinking? You feel all right for Alec? Or are you feeling like we still need to ask, need to dig in a little bit more on how Alec's going to get out of this? I'm feeling a little bit better, man. A little bit, but I mean, you know, thoughts well, and I mean, prayers I mean, and all that. Good stuff. <laughs> yeah, I mean, on the on the liability side, I don't know. I can't say. Yeah. Um, you know, you are absolutely correct. He's psychologically, um, this is going to weigh heavy. I mean, I know, I know a few people in the military who have been either caught in or been the the on the other end of friendly fire stuff, um, and you know that never leaves them. Uh, so uh, the the compounding fact is is that he's. Um, very out in the world as a celebrity. And he also is very vocal on Twitter. Like that's kind of his thing. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know whether he could adjust to a lifestyle change where he just goes quiet for at least for a while. Um, but, you know, if that's his whole thing and he's like, you know, that's the way I communicate. Um, then he, well, I mean, I, I feel bad for the guy, but he's he's going to go through a spiral because the problem with the Twitter is you open yourself up to any person who has an opinion. Um, and not a lot of those opinions are nice. So if you're looking for feedback, it's probably the worst place to go. Um, you know, you're going to have people out there who are very supportive, but you're also going to have 
you know, the world's amount of unpleasant people making comments about what happened who weren't even there. Uh, so I feel bad for him, man. But uh, again, I would say until this court case is over with, he just needs to uh, shut the fuck up. So moral of the story, guys, today um, is keep off Twitter. Shut the fuck up. Check your prop your prop gun and listen to Josh, I think, right? Well, I mean, for anybody who's listening out there, I would advocate, even if you don't own firearms, um, to, you know, try to get firearms training because they're a thing that exists in the world that you might come across at some point. Having a base knowledge of something that could potentially be super dangerous um, is, uh, you know, it's a... A good thing to do and it's a learning experience and you know i'm a big advocate of uh, you never stop learning no matter how old you get you know i'm certainly you know they hired me because they said i have an expertise in firearms but i'm definitely not the be all and end all of firearms training there's guys out there's oodles of guys out there who know more than i do um and if i ever get the opportunity it's always training 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 learn learn new things from new people um, take away lessons that you think are valid. Sometimes you meet people who will teach you some things where you're like, well, maybe that's not the smartest thing, and then you could ditch that. But uh, learning is always the big, big thing, and, and um, training is always the big thing. Like, whenever you get an opportunity to learn a new thing, you should grab onto that. Well, the, the fact is the zombie pop apocalypse is coming. And uh, we, you know... My game plan is still Bass Pro Shops, but, uh, <laughs> so I can I can train there and target practice. But you know, it'd well, be good to have a little bit of a head start. I think you're right. You'd be uh, even now without the zombies appearing. I think you would struggle because, uh, <laughs> well, one, you got to get a in this country. You have to get a possession uh, possession acquisition license, which my brother just completed the course this weekend, um, and then that takes a while to get through, but you know, there's ammo shortages at the moment. There's firearm shortages. Um, obviously supply chain issues with the COVID thing happening. Um, just going and buying a gun, like, you know, happened in the past is not as easy as people think. And even in the States, in jurisdictions where, you know, there is not a lot of laws surrounding it. You can't just going into a store and just picking stuff up is like, I have, I've got a cousin in Florida who who sees this stuff all the time, and he's like, yeah, the shelves are bare. People have basically, since the COVID thing started, have stockpiled on everything. Well, I'm going to leave you with this one little tidbit that I, for some reason, have lodged in my brain. In the old Calgary City of Calgary charter, it, there's still a clause that if you get kicked out of the city, they have to kick you out and leave you with a horse and a shotgun. So if you right. can somehow get kicked out without arrest, being arrested, there's your gun right there. They, they, uh, they, uh, in that, did they mention ammunition? Um, I haven't. <laughs> you get two shells. Two shells is what I hear. <laughs> Because I was going to say, it's uh, you can give them a shotgun, but unless you got the ammo, it's just a paperweight. You can still hurt someone with a shotgun. <laughs> sure. But you might as well then, well, give me a club then, I guess, because there's not much. I mean, that that's, uh, I guess, going back into the training thing. Like, 
um, people think you're like, oh, I'm going to buy a gun. You're like, okay, and what are you going to do after that? And they don't think about, you know, all the other stuff that goes with it. Where's, you know, how much ammunition do I need? Well, how do I set up my equipment so that I can access that ammunition correctly? Do I have a sling on my weapon? Do I have, if you're actually using it as a zombie apocalypse, do I have a tactical light fitted to that weapon? Do I have an optic system? How many magazines do I have to buy if it takes magazines? Like, there's a whole slew of things. And I, I laugh at that charter thing that you said because I'm like, I've got a horse. That means I got transport. Do I have a saddle? <laughs> like, what's the deal? So, I mean, I assume they're setting you up for success, but I don't know. They just <laughs> you'd think. Well, I'm, I'm hoping they would. I'm hoping they would. All right, guys. Well, I think that is it for Can You Confirm That this week. Uh, Gaurav, that was our guest, uh, Josh Munnings. Josh, thanks again for being here. That was great. That was a ton of fun. Sure. Thank you very much for having me on. Um, we, I guess we'll see you guys again next week. Well, if Alec Baldwin doesn't get to us first. <laughs> yeah. Well, we've got, we've got more training than him maybe on our way. <laughs> we at least know that we need to start taking some. Can you Time to dust off the duck on. <laughs> All right, guys, thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next week. On another, can you confirm that? Hey, you like that, right? We'll add that as a tag. That, that'll I be the like thing. It. It's, very, it's very 60 minutes. Yeah, we're, uh, yeah, we're good. Yeah.